This is the Ruminant Podcast. I'm Jordan Marr. The Ruminant Podcast is for people who are passionate about farming, gardening, food politics, food security, and the intersections among these topics. At theruminant.ca, you'll find a summary of each episode, as well as book reviews, essays, and photo-based blog posts to stimulate your thinking about food production. I tweet, at ruminantblog, and email from editor at theruminant.ca. All right, time for the show. Hey everybody, it's Jordan. All right, so on this episode of the podcast, you're going to be hearing from this guy. Hello, my name is Adam Montrey. I've been growing in high tunnels on other people's farms and on our farm since 2002. Uh, since 2008, I've been back at Michigan State in the Department of Horticulture and with the Center for Regional Food Systems as the Hoop House Outreach Specialist. Uh, my wife Drew and I also own and operate Ten Hens Farm in Bath, Michigan which is just outside of Lansing, where we grow year-round in 17,000 square feet of high tunnel space, as well as around three acres of outdoor space. Okay, so here's the thing. As uh, you regular listeners kind of are getting a sense of by now, we're we're on this new format where one week it's a long-form conversation that tends to zoom out and talk about, you know, the broad view of agriculture and big ideas and that sort of thing. And then the next week is a, uh, a series of segments that focus on the practical aspects of farming. And I think it's working well and I've gotten some decent feedback so far, but I still have a backlog of some longer form conversations that are also focusing on the practical aspects of farming. So uh, I am sticking with the new format in the sense that this week it's time for a long form conversation, but uh, it is going to be on greenhouse production. Uh, and I'm really excited to share this conversation with you because Adam was just, a, oh man, just a fountain of knowledge. And uh, really, as you'll learn really quickly, a really articulate guy. Before we get to the conversation, I just want to let you know that this past week or so, I posted a new uh, photo-based blog post at theruminant.ca. Uh, it features uh, ap- aptly for this week's topic a 24-foot wide by about 8-foot tall by 81-foot long hoop house I built for under $1,500 Canadian, which is like $8.50 American or thereabouts. This is not a four-season structure. Uh, it is a three-season structure that would couldn't possibly bear snow and is overall pretty flimsy. Um, but having worked with the 12-foot wide caterpillars that, that Adam and I will briefly talk about in this conversation, um, I wanted to try and come up with a model that gave me a little more room. I, I really can't stand being in those 12-foot wide, wide by 7-foot tall caterpillar models that, that I know a lot of you have already goofed around with yourselves. And I got to say, so far, uh, so good. I've had some strong wind here this week, and it's definitely um, threatening the structure, but I think it's going to hold up. Uh, worst case scenario is that it's not, and I will uh, t- take the, 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 the polyfilm off uh, and then only use the structure for its other purpose, which is to, uh, to be the frame for some shade cloth for the hotter months during the coming season. Anyway, you can see uh, uh, a whole bunch of photos and a full description of, uh, of, of my project at theruminant.ca if you want to check it out. All right, two more housekeeping points. The first is that I was mildly mortified to notice that my monthly e-newsletter that goes out to a whole bunch of you to let you know what content has been happening at the Ruminant in the last month uh, went out automatically um, before I had a chance to go in and update it. So you kind of more or less got a repeat from the previous month. And uh, uh, I hated that. And I'm really sorry about that. I'll try not to let that happen again. Also, when I recorded this conversation with Adam, I was on the road. I was at my my friend's place who were very gracious in letting me record there, but they had um, really noisy pipes and a few other kind of uh, latent uh, atmospheric noises that um, are really prominent in the first 12 minutes of this conversation. And then after that, I was managed to edit a whole bunch of it out, so it won't be so bad. But I do apologize for that. Maybe it'll make the conversation sound cozy. We were kind of recording this on a cold winter day around January 2nd or so. And uh, that's it. All right, so this is a long conversation, so I don't want to take up any more time. I hope you enjoy it, and I will talk to you briefly at the end. Here is my conversation with high tunnel specialist Adam Montry. Adam Montry, thanks a lot for joining me on the Ruminant Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. 
Adam, you are a high tunnel specialist, and I've been very excited to have you on to talk about high tunnels. But we're not, we can't possibly cover everything, and I don't even want to try because if people go to YouTube and search your name, Adam Montri, M O N T R I, they'll find plenty of videos you've already recorded, as well as a webinar or two, and they can they can get uh, re- they get really focused on on many different aspects of, of high tunnel production. So what I thought is I would uh, approach this interview from the point of view of someone like me, who is a serious market gardener, but who has not yet invested in any kind of serious high tunnel infrastructure. How does that sound? I think that sounds great. Great. So Adam, in order to do that, I think we have to dispense with um, a related topic first. Uh, Adam, I think that there are many people like me who in if if they have um messed around with any kind of tunnel production it's been at the level of like the four foot high low tunnels that are um uh promoted by johnny's seeds among others or even the uh the the the, uh in terms of high tunnels you know the, the the six or seven foot high by approximately 12 to 14 foot wide tunnels also promoted by companies like Johnny's. You can you can actually they're they're very um, they lend themselves well to, to to building them yourself. They're they're very rudimentary. Do you use any tunnels like that on your farm, and are you an advocate for those types of tunnels? We do use those types of tunnels on our farm. We have definitely used more of the low tunnels. You know, like the the four foot high ones, like you're talking about. You know, that can cover one or two beds depending on how wide your beds are. Um, we use those. We should probably be using them more than we do. Um, we haven't done a lot with the, the caterpillar tunnels or the, you know, the six foot by 14 or 12 foot ones um, as much on our farm, although a lot of farms that we do work with and a lot of farmers that we know uh, use those also. You know, the benefits of these more rudimentary tunnels are, are, are should be, are, are, are pretty obvious, right? They're, they're, they're very cheap to, to build. Uh, they're easy to build and they're, they're relatively mobile. Uh, and they can be they can be erected and taken down very quickly. Um, but I thought I'd like to ask you about some of the shortcomings, and I want to focus on you know the twelve foot wide by however feet long by about six or seven foot high caterpillar caterpillar style tunnel uh, that is is really common for a lot of market gardeners like me who haven't yet invested in the in the larger infrastructure. So. When, given that the purpose of the tunnel is to manage the environment to to um, uh, you know in, uh, increase uh, the temperature for the for the crops inside, um, what what are some of the drawbacks of using those small these these smaller caterpillar tunnels? Sure. So I think it's really important to kind of repeat what you said is that you know there there are a lot of benefits to them, that especially you know low cost, easy to move, easy to store. You can use, you know, you can use the plastic other places. You can put a, a shade cloth over those hoops if you want in the summer to grow, you know, if you're in a warm area to grow cool season crops in the summer. So the, I think it's important to say that while there might be shortcomings, there's also so many positives. Um, but I think maybe some of the shortcomings are that there's, you know, maybe not as strong. So as say a, a big proper high tunnel, you know, so that if you're in an area that gets a lot of snow load or a lot of, you know, freezing rain where ice is going to build up on the tunnel. Um, you know, they're, they're not going to be as supportive of, of that weight as the proper high tunnels are. So if you are in those areas, you may have more issues with, you know, tunnels collapsing if you're trying to push all the way through the winter. Um, right. I think the other thing is, is that they're not as, um, they're not going to stay as warm as some of those bigger structures or the bigger high tunnels. So if we, we think about kind of, you know, that volume of air inside there as it heats up, um, you know, it, it, it's going to hold that heat longer. If it's say a 30 by 96 or a 30 by 144 foot tunnel, it, it may take longer to heat up than those smaller ones, but it's going to hold that heat longer and further into the winter so that you know, I think production in, uh, you know, in the high tunnels is, is going to be able to go further into the winter or even through the winter and into the spring, depending on the crops in your location as compared to some of the, you know, caterpillar style tunnels, um, especially for maybe some of the more tent, maybe for, maybe for some of the more tender crops, you know, like spinach, I mean, it's hard to kill spinach, right? Right. So, uh, I mean, we've seen spinach in the field, you know, if it gets snow and gets insulated, it starts growing in the spring. But, you know, for things like maybe Swiss chard that, that is hardy and, and cold tolerant, but isn't quite as, 
you know, cold tolerant, maybe that will make more sense to do in a, in a bigger tunnel um, that's going to hold a little bit more heat. And I think I'll, I'll, I'll stop you there and just and ask you to expand on that a little bit. Um, it, I, what I've learned in the last few years, uh, or I think I've learned, is that like what I've, I guess what I've begun to appreciate more is that the actual insulative value of like a six milliliter poly uh, film over over a tunnel, um, it's great for heating up when there's sunshine, but it doesn't hold heat very well overnight. It doesn't have a great R value, if I understand it correctly. Um, which is what you're getting at. When you have a much larger enclosed space, it takes much longer for the heat to dissipate once the sun has gone down. So I'd like to know if I'm roughly right about that and just how how, how considerable is the difference between you know a, a, a large tunnel and one of these caterpillar tunnels? Sure. So yeah, I, I would agree completely that you know that, that that's what we're trying to do if it's covered with six mil poly that you know we the bigger that area, the longer it's going to hold heat. So what's happening right is that the the light coming in on a sunny day during the day, it's heating up the ground, you know, and if we have an internal cover, which in, you know, the colder parts of the country we use as well, um, you know, that we're opening on sunny days and closing on, uh, on cloudy days or, or days where we aren't getting any sun. Um, and so what happens is that's open, the ground's heating up, and then basically all that heat that's been stored in the ground, when it's cold at night, you know, that heat's coming off the ground. And if we have a bigger area, it's just going to take longer to dissipate that heat out. And if we cover it inside, it's going to take even longer because that's going to trap some of that heat, you know, lower down, closer to the ground to where the plants are, are, are at. So um, I would say that I don't have any data to say, you know, this is, this, it takes this long for a caterpillar versus this long for a uh a high tunnel or a, a hoop house, but I, I, what maybe I can say is that you know, on our farm um, at home, all of our tunnels, well, most of our tunnels are 30 by 96. We have 134 and 126 wide, um, but on some other farms we work with, um, especially say at the Student Organic Farm at Michigan State, they have 20-foot wide tunnels and they have 30-foot wide tunnels, um, and the 30-foot wide ones, you can actually, and I know they do have some data from them, but you, when you walk into those tunnels, the different sizes, you can feel that those wider ones are warmer on the, you know, the same day. And they have one that's a 30 by 144 foot there that's right next to a 30 by 96 foot. And that 144 foot one in the winter runs consistently warmer just because it has that big air volume and that, you know, all that space there. So I feel like, you know, as you're getting bigger, in the winter, you know, it, it again, it does take more time to heat up once it does get sunny. Um, but w- once it's heated up, it, it definitely cools down much slower than the smaller tunnel. Right. And then what about, um, what about similarly, can you, can you tell me anything about like the edges of the length of your hoop house? Like, isn't there a significant, like the, isn't there a number of, I don't know, a foot or two feet in from each edge of the length of the, of the greenhouse where, where of a hoop house of a tunnel, um, where it's going to be colder and therefore when you only have a 12 foot wide system, you know, you're, you've got a foot or two on either side that are just going to be that much more exposed. Uh, and that, that which, which ends up making up a much higher proportion of your overall surface area. Do I have that about right? Yeah, I, I think I'd agree with that completely. So even if we think about say a 20 foot wide tunnel and a 30 foot wide tunnel. So if we have, let's just say two feet, uh, you know, in the middle of the winter in June, you know, the, the end of January when it's so cold and, and dark and, you know, if we have a 20-foot wide tunnel and we have two feet on each edge, that doesn't sound like that much. But that's really four out of 20 feet that is, you know, marginal and or really cold and or frozen. So, I mean, that's that's 20% of the production space in there, you know, or one-fifth of the production space, where if we have a 30-foot wide tunnel, you know, it's still only that one or two feet. And so there's definitely, you know, since it's the same amount, there's definitely more usable space or less marginal space in the wider tunnel. So a lot of times when we talk with people um, who are just like you, how you were saying when we started this, you know, they may just be getting into doing tunnels. They may have established market gardens. They know they have a winter market or at least a shoulder season, spring and fall market that they could take advantage of if they had products that, you know, what, what a lot of times, you know, what they'll say is, well, I, I might have the money to do a 20 by 96 or I might have the money to do a 30 by 48 or a 30 by 72 or or something like that. And, and a lot of times we'll say, we'd like to see them go wider rather than longer if mm-hmm. you have to make that decision. Because you can always, 
we did this with one of our tunnels at home and you can take that end wall off so you're changing the plastic you know in year four or year five you can take that end wall off add on say another 48 feet and put that same end wall back on and then recover the whole thing but if you're 20 feet wide while some companies make kind of conversion kits to, to go from 20 wide to, to wider they're sort of awkward and they take a lot of you know metal and and um and, and so we'd rather see if someone's making a decision about you know wider and shorter versus you know longer and narrower. We'd rather see them do the wide, short, and, and be able to add on into the future. Oh, that makes um, a, that makes a lot of like that, yeah, it makes a lot of sense, Adam. Well, look, that's that's good. Your last statement kind of segued us into the next topic I wanted to cover, which is the economics of investing in a in a in a more um, you know a serious high tunnel. Uh, so, so you say that you know your preferred or or the common model on your farm is the thirty by ninety six uh, tunnel. So I, I know, I know that the price varies greatly on, on all the bells and whistles that you can add to your hoop house, but could you give, could you give us an idea of, of what someone can expect to spend in us dollars, um, of a 30 by 96 structure? Sure. And, and it definitely depends on the manufacturer. And like you said, you know, bells and whistles, you do two layers, one layer, automatic roll up, manual roll up thermostatic shutters, manual shutters, you know, lots of different polycarbonate ends, lots of different options. But I'd say, you know, if the stripped down version, um, you know, single layer, wooden end walls, uh, metal frame, um, that's 1.9 inch outside diameter, which is pretty standard for areas that have snow load with four foot bow spacing. We're talking, you know, stripped down version, probably 250 to $3 per square foot, bells and whistles version, you know, with automated everything and and uh, polycarb end walls, um, I'd say we could be in that kind of seven to eight dollars per square foot uh, zone. And again, it depends on the manufacturer and it depends on the bells and whistles. But you know, I mean, even there, that's a for you know three feet at three dollars per square foot at one end and eight dollars per square foot at the other end. That's a pretty big difference there. Right. I just did the calculation. Um, so for that 30 by 96 times, let's say you're bare, you're, you're, it's the bare model, $3 a square foot. So you're looking at around, you know, approaching $10,000 uh, for, that, for yep. that investment. That's actually, that's actually, I realize that's the pared down version, but that's actually lower than I expected you to say. Um, and yet it's still, for some, for some growers, it's going to feel expensive. So at this point, Adam, I just I, I'd like you because I know you're 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 a, a huge advocate for for high tunnel agriculture and what it can do for the economics of a farm. I'd like you to be that advocate right now and make your case for why it's worth spending. <laughs> why it's worth spending? Let's let's create a big range. Why it's worth spending ten to thirty thousand dollars on on a thirty by ninety six high tunnel. And I, I want to point out to listeners, I've read in your bio, it's not like you have a massive farm with massive economics, right? You I mean at least when you got started you were you, what have you got? A, you know, you're growing on a few acres? Yeah, we're on three acres now and in about seventeen thousand square feet of high tunnel space. But when we started we were on a quarter acre and one high tunnel. Right. So, so okay, so you're yeah. one of one of us small scale growers. Um, I just do your best to make the case, like, or if you really, like, or can you make the case? I mean, I assume you can. What you know? Why is it worth taking that leap of faith and 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 spending that ten, twenty, thirty, even forty thousand dollars on a on a on a big high tunnel? The way we look at it is that things that we invest in on our farm are the tools that we invest in are invested on so that they can generate more revenue, right? So we buy a tractor, say so that we can move things more efficiently or we can cultivate things more efficiently. We can spend less time weeding. We can be more efficient with our time. And so what we think about with the tunnel, and, and we can potentially have more high quality product, you know, if it's not covered in weeds, if we don't have disease pressure. And so what we think about with the tunnels is, yes, there's the season extension aspect. Yes, that means that you can grow in the spring or the fall, and in some places all the way through the winter, or at least harvest all the way through the winter. So you have this opportunity cost, more or less, that, that you can take advantage of and have product in the marketplace when less people have product or when there's less product there. So you may be able to get a higher price for it. On the other side, we could even say, let's not do any off-season production. Um, I know where you're at. You know, I used to live in, in the Pacific Northwest, and you know, there's lots of rain and not that warmer temperatures. And, you know, in the Midwest, we have really high humidity and pretty consistent rainfall. And so 
there's disease issues, especially, you know, as market gardeners or market farmers, we know like tomato is king, right? And so when we have tomatoes, that's when the farm starts making money. Well, in the tunnel, I mean, they're, that, that, that crop is king in the tunnel too. And so what we see is not only increased production in tomatoes, but also a, a really, really, really high increase in the quality of those tomatoes and a, you know, a decrease as it goes hand in hand with that in disease pressure. So, you know, I think that, that even if we don't think about, you know, just having, you know, if we don't think about the year round production opportunities with a tunnel, even if we just think about what we can do with warm season crops, which would also include cucumbers and peppers and eggplant and, and those types of crops, that the tunnels not only mediate those, you know, the temperature and we can get things in and we don't have to deal with this, like how close to frost date can I get my warm season crops in? Cause we know they're going to be protected, but we also have this such a, such a drastic increase in quality and, and, and yield from the tunnels that I think just you just growing only warm season crops in them would make them worth worthwhile. And I think we can say something along the lines of, you know, if we planted tomatoes in there um, only, and let's just say we had wide spacing. So let me think, we'll do a little math problem here if I can think through it here. So, you know, if we had, let's say six rows of tomatoes, you gotta get a pencil for this, so six rows of tomatoes, and let's just say they're even at two, um, two feet apart, which is pretty wide in the tunnel. We're more like 18 inches, but let's say they're, they're two feet apart. Um, so in a 96 foot house, let's say we get 45 plants per row times six rows is 270 plants. And let's just say we get 20 pounds per plant, which is a high yield, but it's also in the tunnel. And it's also, um, you know, we, we can push yields in there pretty well. So we've got, you know, 5,400 pounds of tomatoes coming out of that tunnel, you know, and, and that's with wide spacing. And we can usually get another row in there too. So that's wide spacing, decreased rows. And we're at 5,400 pounds. When you start saying you have tomatoes, you know, four weeks ahead of time or ahead of the field and four weeks after the field, I mean, you can start saying, you know, what, what's your price for those? You know, and, and that varies by your market. But even at $2 a pound, which I think is low for early tomatoes, you're talking about $11,000 right there in, in gross. And yes, there's costs that go into it, obviously. You know, there's labor that goes into having a lot of tomatoes, you know, houses full of tomatoes. Um, but I think you can start to push the pencil and kind of say, okay, well, you know, if I start to grow only tomatoes in there, you know, maybe that pays, um, you know, that pays a good amount. So if I say, let's say there's 11000 or $12,000 in tomatoes, and then you throw a spinach crop in there and you get another, you know, six to $7,000 out of there, you can fairly... I won't say easily, you have to have the developed markets and you have to move that product, but you can be, you know, in that 15 to $20,000 per, per tunnel, you know, per year in, in, in sales in gross sales. So even if we net, you know, even if we net half of that, or even if we net 40% of that, you know, we're talking eight to $10,000 on under 3000 square feet of space. Right, right. So manage, yeah. manage well. Um, these these tunnels can can quickly pay for themselves. I guess is 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 sort of what you're suggesting. Right, and and I think that's where, in my mind, that's where the fun part starts coming in. Is is this? You know, when we first started farming, it we used to think about how quickly can we pay something off. Like we don't want to carry debt. How quickly can we pay this off so that we're debt free? But now, in we start to look at things, and I think this is the business piece that, that comes in from having people help us and talk to us about how their businesses run and, and also just gaining experience as a business owner. We can start to say, okay, well, I could pay off, let's just say I could pay off this high tunnel in one year, but interest rates are so incredibly low right now, even though they just were raised a little bit, like maybe it makes more sense to pay, you know, invest in a different tool or invest in another tunnel and pay off you know, just a portion of that tunnel each year over, say, a four-year period, you know, and that's, that's the fun part that I like about being a business owner is you, you get to play those puzzles of, you know, do I carry debt? If I carry debt, how, how does that impact the farm? And is it better to have that cash on hand? And, you know, like, like we, we took a loan out for three tunnels, um, three production tunnels, a small tunnel that we use for wash pack and storage and a, a walking cooler. And it was a four-year loan for $15,000 because we got everything used. 
but it was like, and, and it's going to be paid off this year, but it only cost us $1,500 in interest over four years because interest rates are low, you know? So it's like, well, what if we paid that off in the first year? We could, but, but it seems like that cash, you know, instead we bought, uh, you know, some cultivating equipment for the tractor and thinking about, you know, so there's, there's those kinds of things that, that I think, so it's, it's not only can the tunnels pay for themselves, but it's also can the tunnels generate more revenue that can be invested back into the business. Adam, one last economics question. You know, you talked about that base model, uh, 30 by 96 tunnel, uh, the bare bones model that, that we, you know, is going to run eight to 10,000 us dollars by your, by your estimates. If, if someone was going to then maybe add, you know, one or two features, spend a little bit more and it's their first tunnel. Is there, is there something you would recommend they focus on? In, in terms, in terms of you know, getting getting you know the first one or two features that they would get beyond the the, the base model. Yeah, that's a good question. I've never really had that question. It's always sort of a what are the options, but not a what would you choose. Um, you know, I think the the automatic roll up sides are really nice, um, but they run about two grand, and so or sixteen fifteen hundred to two grand. So I think that, that while they're nice and I think and more and more people are doing them, um, you know, that, that would be an option, especially if um, you know, they're far away from where, you know, if your farm is spread out or they're a little bit away from where your production fields are or that, so that you're not, you know, on days where it might be, you know, warm and cold and warm and cold and cloudy and sunny that you're not running back and forth. Um, but it, again, that's a, you know, that's a, not a cheap addition to add on to them. Um, I think that if you have shutters up in the peaks, you know, putting those on automatic, uh, you know, thermostats would be an option too. That really helps with venting, especially, and, and especially in the winter, you know, it's, we vent now at more or less when the tunnels get to be 40 or 45 degrees or, you know, around five degrees centigrade that, that we vent. Um, in the winter so that we don't get this big humidity buildup and, and, and have high temperatures and then really cold freezing temperatures at night. So, you know, I think that, that those would be two options, you know, although what comes along with those is, you know, there's, while there's some, you know, solar options, you know, we also have, uh, you know, you have mostly have to get electricity out to the, you know, the sites, which also cost money and, and, you know, an electrician skill as well. Okay. So it so. sounds like if I could summarize, if, 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 and then, and that also assumes that there's electricity available right up to the site. But if that's, if that's the case, mm -hmm. then it sounds like venting should be a high priority. If you're going to spend, you know, just to, like, if you're going to spend some more beyond the base model. Um, yeah, I think so. Right. Okay. Well, look, let's move on. We're going to talk about, I'd like to talk about humidity a bit later, but I'll save that for a bit later. I just want to, I just want to okay. spend a little time on some of the practical and functional considerations of, of building the hoop house and on, on how the, the beds are laid out and that sort of thing. Um, Adam, my first question is, okay, so you're, I, I know that, I know that a lot of the companies that sell the, the, the infrastructure also offer to install it. And I'm wondering if these larger high tunnels are something you recommend that can they can 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 someone build it themselves very easily? Is is the pro installation, the professional installation worth the money? Where do you sit on that? So if you're a farmer who has lots going on in your farm, which most farmers do, uh, it, it may be worthwhile to have it installed. Uh, I think that clearly people can build them themselves uh, and that saves some cost, but it also takes time. Uh, I think that if there's someone or multiple people that are close to you that that know how to build them, and we definitely know that if you have someone who's experienced, um, it goes a lot faster than you know someone having a group of people who can still build it and they're you know do a great job of building it, but that it, it's just going to go a lot faster if you either have someone to build it yourself or someone to build it with you that knows what they're doing or. You know, if you do have some funds available to be able to have someone build it also. Uh, I think it's, it's kind of a trade-off, you know, do you, do you have the time and want to save the money or do you have other things going on that you value your time worth more than it's going to, what it's going to cost to pay someone to install it? What we like to say is that it's a, it's a lot easier than building a barn or hanging drywall because you get to cover it with plastic. So you know, if it's, it's not like if things are a little bit off, I mean, you don't want them really far off, but if things are a little bit off, when you put that sheet of plastic over it, 
you can't really see that, you know, this post was a half, a half inch further out than this post or, or that. So I think the, the important part, if you are going to build it your, yourself, which I think people can do, and we, we've built a lot of them and with people and, and know a lot of people who have built them on their own also, that it's just really important to take that first step um, of when you're squaring up the tunnel or the hoop house to make sure that you do it square, make sure you measure the diagonals multiple times. Um, because if you build it, you know, put the post in out of square, kind of each step going on is going to get a little bit harder and a little bit more out of whack. And and so, you know, just taking the time, you know, to, to make sure that the posts are squared up and, and, and installed correctly, that, that from there, it's kind of like a big tinker toy, you know, or link until you get, until you get to covering the plastic. So, but yeah, I mean, I think people can do it. Yeah. Great. Thank you. So my next question is, I've seen in one of your videos that you, you know, you, you, you advocate in terms of how to orient the, the hoop house, you, you advocate orienting the length of the hoop house from east to west. And that has to do not with how conditions are in the summer, but, but in the, in the, you know, in the, in the winter, in, in, you know, in the, when you're, when you're extending the season. And I'm just wondering if you can explain why it's important to consider orienting your, your hoop house east to west. Sure. So like you said, if it's just for summer production, it really doesn't matter. And if you're more or less, you know, below 40 degrees north latitude, it also doesn't matter. But the further we get north, um, the, the more and the later we want to grow into the year or through the winter, the more important it is to orient it east-west. And the reason is that the sun is really low and you can kind of pitch, if you picture, you know, kind of close your eyes and picture a hoop house. You know, if you have the sun really low in the southern part of the sky, and if let's just say you orient it north-south, you've got this very straight end wall um, that you're trying to get this light to pass through and go, let's say it's 96 feet, go all the way down to the other end of the tunnel. And we know that the further from 90 degrees that light hits the surface, the more reflection and refraction we get. So the more bending of light, so we get less light kind of infiltrating and getting into passing through the plastic and getting into the, the tunnel. And we have to remember, since we're not heating, that heat is light, or light is heat for us in the winter. So we were saying we need to get things thawed out. We need to get those temperatures up to be able to harvest. So what we're trying to do is maximize light. So if then we picture it, you know, oriented with the long end east and west, we can think about the sun in the south, low on the horizon, and it's passing along that whole side of the tunnel throughout the day, even in, you know, when days are short, say, you know, nine hours or less, you know, the further you go north, we're about, you know, nine hours is, is close to the, the shortest days we get. But the, you know, you get it passing all along that side of the tunnel and you have um, trying to get it to, say, move 20 or 30 feet across the tunnel and trying to capture more light so that, you know, when it's hitting that kind of angle on the side of the, the tunnel, you know, um, that you're getting more light passing through. So that's why we like to orient them east-west if we're above 40 degrees north latitude. I think that it's important to say, you know, that being said, we also know people who have done them north-south that are where we are or further north because of other things like they may have a tree line or they may have an outbuilding or they may have another type of structure that if they did it east-west, part of it would be in the shade all winter long from this building. And so, you know, say it's a barn, you know, it might cast a shadow on that. And if we casting a shadow, we're not going to warm up at all in there. So you know, it's not saying that we should, that you absolutely have to do it east west, but that that maximizes the light and therefore the heat inside there in the winter. Right. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Thanks, Adam. Um, all right. I also, I also noted in one of your talks that you just talked about making sure you think when you're selecting the site, you, you want to think about whether you might be, um, putting in another tunnel after you discover how much you like tunnel production, um, and, and think about where that tunnel would go. And if it's going to be, if you're going to be hoping to get it nearer to the first one, um, there's a certain width you want to leave between the tunnels and, and there's a little formula you use. Can you, can you tell me about that? Sure. So we know on the, yeah, so like you said, if we're going to put them kind of close to each other and they're going to be going, you know, they're oriented east-west, let's say we're stacking them, you know, north of each other, um, or, or we're, we've built the far north of the field and we're going to go south, 
so that they're you know in front of each other that way that we know that the shadow on the the shortest day of the year so december 21st 22nd and there that the shadow is twice the height of whatever structure so if we have a hoop house that say is 15 feet at the peak that we know we want to leave 30 feet until we build the next one um, if it's 20 you know 20 feet wide they tend to be around 11 or so feet at the peak so if you're 11 feet, then you want to leave 20, 22 feet or so between uh, between the tunnels. So, and and what's off, what's nice about that is that that space between sort of forms this little micro environment where it's a little bit warmer in the fall. It's a little bit cooler in the spring because it's shaded from the tunnels, but it's a little bit warmer in the fall and a little bit more protected from the winds. And, and a lot of times that's where we like to do some of our low tunnel stuff, you know, going into the, the fall and winter is between the tunnels. Um, because what's, what's really nice about it is, well, if we had a 30 foot wide tunnel that was 15 feet, we also have a 30 foot wide space between there. And so when we start calculating yields and, you know, how many rows per beds, how many beds fit in there, it's really similar. It's, it's almost like a, a tunnel that's not covered for planning wise, you know, bed, bed number, yield number, number of plants needed um, and, and a little bit protected. Cool. So speaking of, of beds and, and more specifically bed layout, Adam, uh, you, I believe, are an advocate for orienting your beds uh, across the tunnel. And I think a lot of us are used to thinking of bed layout in a hoop house as going front down the length of the tunnel. Uh, and I saw some photos from your, from your talks. And I'm just wondering if, if I, do I have that right? Are you still an advocate for, do you recommend going across? So we do all of ours, the length now, and that's been as we've scaled up. So, you know, as we've gotten more tunnels, as we've gotten more um, you know, basically more markets that can move the same crop as opposed. So, so maybe we could say that when we were doing them the short ways across, um, we were a much smaller farm. We had um, smaller market or less markets that we were in taking less volume of single crops. So um, what I liked about the short ways across was that it gave us um, kind of a way in my head to manage those beds for rotation. So in a 96 foot long tunnel, we get about 23 beds going the short ways across. And we get, depending on how wide they are, five or six or even seven in a, um, if we run them the length. And so when we were doing, say, you know, four beds of carrots and four beds of spinach and four beds of radishes and four beds of turnips, and, you know, I could, I could think of those blocks as field, kind of as field. So for rotation, they could just move. I didn't see, I didn't have to have my head like, well, did we plant, you know, 20 feet of carrots in this first row last year? Or did we plant, you know, 30 feet? So where do I move them to so that I'm not planting carrots in the same place? And so, so the short ways across, I think, works really well for farms that have less volume of more crops in the tunnels. And, and again, as we've scaled up, we've moved to now basically instead of blocking, you know, four or five beds, we're now blocking tunnels. So we do, you know, in the summer, we do two tunnels of tomatoes, um, you know, a tunnel of cucumbers, um, and a tunnel of strawberries, um, a tunnel of peppers. So now for us, the rotation is by house as opposed to within the house. So that's when we kind of switch to moving them the length, you know, doing them the long ways. Um, especially for direct seeded crops. So for things like salad mix in the spring through, you know, or the, the fall through the winter and into the spring, you know, being able to run a seeder, the, you know, 90 foot beds as opposed to 30 foot or 26 foot or 27 foot beds, you know, is, is obviously more efficient and, you know, less turns. So, um, so again, as we've scaled up, we've switched to that. Um, I think it's also just, a, I think it's a management preference. We've done the the math on it. Um, we had a person here who was really good and really liked doing layouts and that. And, you know, she figured out that whether you run the beds the length ways or the width ways, you're basically using the same square footage of production space if the beds are the same width. So we always thought, I always thought if you ran them lengthwise, you know, there were less aisles, it was going to be less or more production space. But I mean, you just have longer aisles. Is there anything now that you switched? Is there anything that you miss? I mean, it makes total sense why you switched to to planting along the length. But is there anything you miss about about the uh, the, the the crosswise orientation? Uh, I feel like when we're doing tomatoes, it's a lot of walking because they're all strung up. You know, so it feels like you know if we're at one end, 
and the tomatoes are, you know, eight or nine feet tall, we can't step over to the next aisle. We have to walk to, you know, I mean, one end or the other end um, to kind of get around them where when they were the short ways, you know, you could kind of hop around each of the ends. It felt like there was almost less walking. Uh, okay. I, does that make sense? Yeah. I, totally. I don't know if there was, but um, just, just like a psychological you know, thing. The ends and, yeah. Yeah. Cause we, we did when we used to do tomatoes the short ways, we'd walk to the, the end and hand them out the side of the roll up side and someone would come along and pick them up. You know, now it's, we have to walk them down to the front of the tunnel, you know, every time because we can't, especially when they're, you know, peaked and, and really tall and it's just kind of a you know tomato walls in there so adam i, I want to move on to something you referenced earlier and that's um you know making sure you're you're giving proper attention to um i guess well managing temperature and hum- and humidity properly in in those shoulder seasons so you know let's talk about when you're trying to grow in the winter um you you mentioned earlier that that you can't you have to at least be thinking about how high you're letting the temperature get during the day, especially in places with high humidity, and 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 actually having to limit the temperature to maybe only five or ten degrees Celsius because you don't want the difference between day temperature and night temperature to be too great. Can you explain why that's that can be problematic? Sure. So it's especially true in the winter, and I think you know the the temperature, and then we can and the humidity, which are are somewhat linked. So in the winter, our light levels are are pretty low. They're lower than we need for really good plant growth. So we need about 10 moles per meter squared per day of light to get good plant growth. And when we, for us, where we're at, more or less mid October, we start to get below that. So we still get a little bit of growth after that, but but we don't get a lot of growth. So in the winter, I mean, the idea of the tunnels without heating them is that we're basically trying to plant early enough in the fall to get things large enough that it basically is going to act like a big refrigerator for us. We're going to get a little bit of growth, especially on the really cold tolerant stuff like spinach and some kales and 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 some mustards and those kinds of things. But mostly we're trying to just hold things where they are and harvest out as we need them. So if we get really high temperatures in the winter, especially, say we let it get up to, you know, 70 degrees or, or so Fahrenheit that, that that's, and then we're down at say 15 degrees at, at night, that's not going to, getting that for one day isn't going to make our plants grow anymore. And it's really going to stress them out because they're going to have, you know, a 60, say 55, 60 degree temperature differential from night to day. So, so we're not getting any added growth and we're stressing the plants out, which are, you know, things, something that we don't want to do. And, and so the other thing that starts to happen in the tunnels is as we get that increased temperature, um, we start to hit the dew point. We start to get a lot of condensation and we start to get, you know, high humidity and we start to get a lot of moisture um, on the plants and on the tunnel, um, on the plastic itself and, and then on the plants as well. And so we, we definitely want to be managing that through venting in the winter. Um, because if, if not, what we're basically doing is making a, you know, not dark, like a dark room or, or anything, but it's, it's dark in the winter, so to speak, compared to the summer and it's cool, you know, and we have plants that are really densely planted with each other to try to maximize that space. So basically what we're, we're getting at in the winter is kind of creating a great environment for fungal growth, right? Cool, moist, um, and not a lot of airflow. So what we try to do in, in the winter is, is, again, start to vent at, you know, 5C or, or, you know, around 41, 42, 45 Fahrenheit. Um, we'll open up the vents. We have vents in the end, some that are on thermostats, some that are automatic, uh, some that aren't automatic that we just prop open. And, and what we're trying to do there is, one, decrease the, you know, not or prohibit the temperature from getting too high and building up, but also trying to get that humidity out of those tunnels as well. It just it, from from watching some of your videos online, I just gather there's 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 venting is crucial all through the year um, because really tunnel production is about yes raising the overall uh, temperature a little bit, but but really trying to control it so that the plants um, you know plants haven't evolved to, to to deal with wild swings in temperature, and I imagine that uh, a really good hoop house grower really wants to try and uh, exert quite a bit of control over temperature changes uh, through the day. Definitely. And I agree with you exactly what you said is that, you know, even in the summer and in the shoulder seasons, especially, you know, it's, it's this game of playing like how long, you know, 
How long can you keep it open? How big are the plants? You know, do you need to close it a little bit early in the fall because you got stuff in a little bit late? But then how do you, you know, you're pushing the temperatures a little bit and say October because you planted stuff late, but you don't want it to be too humid. So there's, you know, it's just like, it's like field growing, right? It's every year is different. Every day is different. And, you know, as farmers, we're all making decisions as to, you know, how are we going to, you know, best, best grow these plants and, and give them the environments that, that they're going to kind of blossom and prosper in so that, you know, we can, we can harvest and we can have decreased disease and we can have decreased pest pressure. Um, but, but each of our decisions that we make definitely impacts, you know, how well the plants do. Now, now, now earlier, Adam, you talked about, you know, if you, if you were going to recommend, you know, what people would spend their money on, if they're going to add certain features to the basic model of a hoop house, and you talked about venting being pretty important. I know that uh, at least early on in your farm, you you and your wife spent the money on automatic venting, electricity supplied venting uh, with thermostats because of the freedom it gave you. Because th- as you've just described, venting and, and temperature and humidity control is really important. And by adding the automatic uh, systems, it, you didn't you weren't didn't have to be constantly there worrying about it. And, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I think that the description you just gave of some of the problems that can come up is, a, is an illustration of, of why people might consider uh, spending that money. Because I, I have to imagine it took a lot of stress out of your life. Yeah, it, it did. And it, I think it's really important, too, to say at that time, right, we were both working off-farm full-time. Um, and so we weren't – and we didn't have any employees at that time so we weren't i mean it was us and we weren't there we just weren't we had traveling for work and traveling for conferences plus just you know day in and day out off farm work and so you know now as we've you know i've i've decreased my time at msu and i spend more time on the farm and we have three employees you know now five of our tunnels don't have an or six of them because we have that storage and wash pack one don't have automated anything on them but we still have this one that's got the automated sides and the, the automated shutters. And, and so it's definitely been, a, you know, as the business has changed and developed, that's something that we've, you know, we've dropped. Um, but I also know there's plenty of farms, people that we work with really closely that are there all the time um, that like the automated sides for exactly what you said. You know, that it's something that they don't have to think about. You know, they can check and make sure they're working. Um, and in a way, you know, away they go. At the end of the day, they check the tunnels. In the morning, they check the tunnels. And, and otherwise, you know, they're, the, the sides and the shutters are doing their thing. So, Adam, is there, before we before we wrap up, is there are there any resources, either ones that you've produced or, or ones that uh, others have produced that you recommend for people who, who want to learn more about mastering high tunnel production? Um, sure. I mean, I think obviously, you know, Elliot Coleman's books are out there. Um, you know, I think a lot of us are in the place that we're in and, um, because of the things that he did and continues to do. Um, I think that, uh, Paul and Allison Wiedegar, who are in Kentucky at O Natural Farm, you know, they've been doing it for, you know, 20 plus years. They do a great job. Um, and I think Paul and Sandy Arnold, um, out in, in, uh, uh, plus, uh, at Pleasant Valley Farm in Argyle, New York, they're, you know, putting presentations and, and, and experience out there and the same thing. They've been doing it for a, a long, long time. And um, so I think that, you know, those are, those are some great resources. And, and then, you know, Lewis Jett, um, who used to be at University of Missouri, who's now at uh, West Virginia University, he's got a lot of warm season stuff, um, tomatoes, melons, cucumbers. Uh, he's got some strawberry stuff that he's working on. Um, and, and he's got great publications that look at the economics of it also. So I think, you know, it's a, but yeah, what, what I think about it is that that's kind of where we started this conversation is, is I'm really glad to be farming in the, uh, the internet age, because I think farming 20 years ago, you know, with trying to find the information, especially about small scale diversified farming, you know, is, is so at our fingertips now. And there's, there's some great people doing great work and, and we can really access that information easily as opposed to, you know, 20 years ago trying to, you know, figure out where and how we can find those things. Well, I think it's clear you're one of the people doing great work, Adam. And uh, I just, I want to thank you again for, for, for giving us so much of your time today. Well, thank you very much. And, and uh, you know, I've been enjoying the room in it lately since I found out about it also. And, and so thank you for you know, bringing on, you know, 
and bringing kind of consolidating lots of information from lots of great farmers and people out there doing different things. So, and I really appreciate you asking me to be a part of it. All right. That's all folks. Hey, Adam Montry, that was terrific. I really enjoyed re-listening to that a couple months later. So thanks again, and I uh, hope you hope you all liked it, and I'm going to just shut up and let you listen to the outro, and I will talk to you next week. Ciao. give me the screw But if we bury ourselves in the woods in the country Wear no clothes so we never have laundry We'll owe nothing to this world of thieves Live life like it was meant to be our don't fret honey I've got a plan to make our final escape all we'll need is each other a hundred dollars and maybe a roll of duct tape and we'll run right outside of the city's reaches we'll live off chestnut spring water and peaches we'll own nothing to this world of thieves and live life like it was meant to be trying to bleed us dry we could be happy with life in the country with salt on our skin and the dirt on our hands i've been doing a lot of thinking some real soul searching and here's my final resolve I don't need a big old house or some fancy car to keep my love going strong. So we'll run right out into the wilds and braces. We'll keep close quarters with gentle faces and live next door to the birds and the bees and live life like it.